0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. In this episode, we continue our contemplation of magic from the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty Archives. The next few contemplations have a lot of important insights to offer. And the ideas may feel pretty exciting at times, I think. It's interesting and exciting material. So we have to keep a a spacious mind and watch out for either clinging to the ideas or rejecting them. We can practice a clearer mind when things get exciting or when they seem rather boring, which is not to make anything of the mind. In fact, it's to relax and notice the clarity of the nature of mind. The practice of magic is the practice of a clear mind like that. Clear mind and vital feeling. That's the practice of magic. Everything we've considered so far has its importance. We haven't been tr- trivial We haven't taken any digressions. Horses are so important that we could do no more than orient ourselves to ask the question of what kind of magic they might offer. We'll return to them. There's a lot more to contemplate there. And we'll return to other things we've touched on so far. Now that last contemplation about horses is called the magic, medicine, and mystery of horses. It's a very deliberate title. The magic of horses may heal us. And so horses could become medicine to heal our soul and the soul of the world, to actually heal the landscapes of the world. Horses could heal conquest consciousness and help us re indigenize. But for that to happen, we would have to become initiates. The word mystic means someone who got initiated. It's not something covert or obscurantist. Sometimes we think of the word mystical as meaning like it's some kind of cover up. It just means an initiation. And a mystery is something we cannot understand without initiation. The horse could initiate us into the mysteries of life, into the mysteries of what it means to live in harmony with the divine and the divine creation. That's being indigenous. But we can't have any simple-minded notion there. We can't think that just because we love horses and have powerful experiences with them, that if we just sit with them and listen, we'll become initiated fully into the mysteries of life. Because we live in a culture with the most limited understanding of things like initiation, Things like psyche, the nature of mind, the mind of nature. It's all limited in the dominant culture. And in fact, it's limited in any place infected by conquest consciousness. Even indigenous writers like Vine Deloria has said, he wrote about how everyone got cut off. by conquest consciousness, even indigenous people. And so there's a real work. And and the irony that some indigenous elders and thinkers, philosophers, have recognized is that it's in part in the anthropological record that sadly it's because some white people went in and recorded some of what they saw and some of what people remembered and that all of us might have to study that. And the point is that we don't know what we're trying to get initiated into, many of us, certainly the people in the dominant culture. We don't know what it would mean. What is initiation? What would we be trying to get initiated into? And how would we proceed? We don't know about that. We really have to think carefully, deeply. And we will have to consult the wisdom traditions around the world for that. So to think about the magic, medicine, and mystery of horses or anything else will take more time. And it's good to return. The horse is a spiritual keystone species. As I've said before, just like there are keystone species in various ecologies that really hold the ecology together, the horse is a spiritual keystone species in the soul and in the world. Now for now, in this contemplation, we finally get to the third principle of magic, that Yeats gives us. And as I said, it's exciting stuff. Challenging, too. This third principle of magic gets at the whole matter in a different enough way that it can feel very fresh to our mind, especially if we keep a beginner's mind. It's like we're thinking from a very different angle than we did before in a certain way. And yet it's the same subject matter. So it's interesting. It can shed light on everything else we've considered including the horse. But whatever you love, this third principle could refresh it in your mind and refresh your relationship to the world. Well, let's review the Yeats passage. He writes, I believe in the practice and philosophy of what we have agreed to call magic, in what I must call the evocation of spirits, though I do not know what they are. I always love that part. It's so important that he says, look, we're evoking these sacred powers and inconceivable causes, but you know, they're sacred and inconceivable. I don't really know what they are. And I think it's partly a confession of a person who's just admitting, I've been infected by conquest consciousness. I've seen these things. I've talked to people who've seen these things. I believe in magic. It's, It's clear to me, but I don't know what's going on. That's really a good attitude, because if we we could admit that, then maybe be more careful about how we approach it. Anyway, so he says, I don't know, I believe in what I must call the evocation of spirits, though I do not know what they are. In the power of creating magical illusions, in the visions of truth, in the depths of the mind when the eyes are closed. And here, just let's just say as, as an aside... Again, let's not think that we can close our eyes and then we have a vision, like we're a prophet. Wisdom traditions say, no, it's not so easy. Yes, Yates is right. There's some something we, we could access. But the practice of magic is pretty demanding for us to get there and think we're really receiving a truth that could inform the community of life. So then Yates says, I believe in three doctrines, which have, as I think, been handed down from early times and been the foundations of nearly all magical practices. These doctrines are, one, that the borders of our minds are ever-shifting and that many minds can flow into one another, as it were, and create or reveal a single mind, a single energy. Two, that the borders of our memories are as-shifting and that our memories are a part of one great memory, the memory of nature herself. Three, that this great mind and great memory can be evoked by symbols. And then Yeats concludes, I often think I would put this belief in magic from me if I could, for I have come to see Or to imagine in men and women in houses, in handicrafts, in nearly all sights and sounds, a certain evil, a certain ugliness that comes from the slow perishing through the centuries of a quality of mind that made this belief and its evidences common over the world. That's marvelous. Okay, so that's his whole reflection. Among other things, so far we've suggested that the biggest barrier to serious consideration of magic might come to something like this. We have not yet accepted the scientific and philosophical principle that what we know depends on our way of knowing it. We think we just know things. Things are as they are, and then knowledge means we know how they are. And this scientific and philosophical principle says no. Knowledge depends on your way of knowing it. And we could put that another way. We have not fully understood not just understood, but understood the non-duality of the observer and the observed. Putting this in terms of knowledge, we could say that if we live in a magical way, if we know the world in a magical way, then we can know things that remain unknowable to someone not living that way. That's partly a reflection of what Yeats was saying. He sees an ugliness and even an evil in the world. And it's from a way of life that now makes certain things unknowable to people. Because before, there was this widely experienced, there was evidence, and there was a shared knowledge about the world as magical. Now, if we live in a different way, well, some things have become unknowable to us. And we'd have to change our way of life, not just change our beliefs, not just say, well, now I believe in magic, and so there. therefore the world's different. It's how we live. Love, wisdom, or philosophy is how we do things. Really, how it is in our body, in our day-to-day life. So we're touching here something profound, not something trivial. We might think it has to do with mere belief, as if believing in magic becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, but not so. A properly philosophical practice of magic seeks experience, not belief. And we could point out that an electron, for instance, doesn't manifest as either wave-like or particle-like, depending on our mere beliefs, but it does manifest depending on how we know it. That's crucial. If we know the electron in ways that allow it to manifest as particle-like, then the electrons can behave like particles again and again and again. If we want them to manifest as waves, we have to change how we know them, how we go about knowing them, knowing their presence. As a a bit of an aside, we could acknowledge that David Bohm's interpretation of quantum mechanics remains viable, even to this day, and it would alter how we speak about some of these quantum mysteries, because it, there is a difference in his interpretation. It's crucial. But what Bohm does not contradict, and in fact what he encourages us to understand, to inquire into and fully confront is a fundamental wholeness to the cosmos that includes the non-duality of the observer and the observed. This fundamental wholeness makes magic possible. Practicing in accord with this wholeness, from it and toward it, allows magic to happen. Magic is the practice of wholeness. That's an important thought to keep in mind. In cognitive science, this wholeness gets recognized in various ways that extend the boundaries of thinking beyond our own skin. We've contemplated that. Magic has to do with thinking beyond our skin. But remember, habitually, it doesn't matter what we want to profess. Love wisdom is not what we profess. It's what we are how we've practiced, and what we practice is hiding behind our skin. And we've practiced in a way that doesn't manifest or presence in a skillful way the manner in which perception and action already arise as integrated. Magic has to do with really living from that integration of perception and action. It's living an ecology of mind, an ecology of perception. We could also refer to this kind of wholeness that we're talking about as non-locality and non-linearity. And maybe we have to start there in a general way to think about pattern with sensitivity and depth. So we're talking about wholeness and Nonlinearity, linearity non-locality that evokes the notion of pattern. And we will, we'll see, I think, if we think about pattern a little bit together, we'll see that we can, if we think about pattern with enough sensitivity and depth, then we can think about mind and memory and how they might be evoked by symbols. So to get at this third principle, really we're asking how does magic function? And we've acknowledged before that it's subtle and profound. And if it's subtle and profound, we should try to appreciate it in a sophisticated way, with subtlety, and not get lost, not get loose and crass in our thinking. Non-duality, non-linearity, non-locality, these three go together in our inquiry into magic. And we can note that classical philosophy has always had non-dualistic varieties. But non-local epistemology, and remember that's the fancy term for our theories and practices related to how we know epistemology. Just It's just a fancy word, but it just means how we know things because we live on the basis of what we know. So non-local ways of knowing Non-local practices seem largely absent from all but the highest levels of the wisdom traditions, the sages, and also indigenous cultures. And so this marks off one of the biggest challenges faced by children of the dominant culture, any child of conquest consciousness, and that's us, in, in a double sense, in one sense that from the standpoint of a mature culture, most people who consider themselves adults in the dominant culture are, are not adults. They're still juveniles. We're just very old children. But also that this culture gave birth to us. And we have to give birth to ourselves all over again. That's being reborn, that the wisdom traditions, they all have this. Initiation is to be born anew, into a new consciousness. The difference is that in other cultures, in a more a culture more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, you're starting from a much better place. When we contemplated Richard Sorensen's observations, the anthropologist Richard Sorensen, we contemplated his observations about how the invasion of conquest consciousness affected what he called liminal awareness threshold awareness. That's the difference is like our ordinary Conquest consciousness, he called supra-liminal. It's like above the surface, hasn't gotten down in. And we considered the possibility that Western education practices, or we could say Western, instead of calling it practices, Western education practices and realizes a breakdown of truth, intimacy, resonance with nature and with each other, attunement with each other, with other beings, and attunement with the sacred. Western education practices and realizes a breakdown in those things. And we can reflect then in even further resonance with Yeats. And we can call that the breakdown of magic. And that gives us a different way of understanding the term magic. This breakdown happens possibly because conquest consciousness goes all together with aggression, competition, self-centeredness, deceit, fragmentation, the need for medication, the pressure of time, the forcing of agendas, pursuing conscious human purposes, all this, everything we're familiar with really in our culture, a lot of what we value, even people who think of themselves as very progressive or new agey, whatever it might be, whatever could be a very nice word, spiritual, religious. We still affirm some of the basic gestures of conquest consciousness, not seeing that those basic gestures are themselves the problem, and we can't reform them just because we think our agenda is a nice one. Now, this is not to say there's nothing good in Western culture, or that it is nothing but these negative things or that people in other cultures never practice and realize delusion, deceits, fears, cravings, and other forms of suffering. The issue has to do with the basic style of relating. And we could reasonably suggest that conquest consciousness may often mean the end of magic. Especially if that consciousness, that conquest consciousness, has co-opted what we call reason, reasoning, in order to justify and perpetuate itself by means of rational arguments and rational efficiencies. So we're touching here on some of the warnings that we need for any, anyone who's interested in magic, especially if we like the idea, we feel open to it. We in the dominant culture don't really understand magic. That's Yeats' confession. We have some new schools of magic and mystery that have appeared. Modern practitioners may even have a certain amount of confidence. You can see it. It's easy to find people on the internet with a lot of confidence in their practice of magic. And it might go by different names. Self-help, shamanism, they're tapping it, trying to tap into the same currents once we understand what we, what, how we have contemplated magic, you see it becomes rather broad. It's something spiritual and philosophical and ecological. And we have seen, and we'll continue to see in this contemplation too, that magic presents a lot of challenges if we seek to understand it and understand it in a full and rigorous way. And we're trying to make all this accessible, to think about things that, oh yeah, it, it can make sense, but it, if it seems we understand everything then we need to take a step back and contemplate again. We may think we understand magic, but our soul warns us we do not. That seems kind of interesting because we see this warning in popular culture. You might have noticed this. There's a strange consistency in themes when we look at some of the books, movies, and series about magic. One of the themes that we find has to do with people performing magic and then creating unintended consequences which they themselves didn't notice. We see that theme again and again in, in the stories about magic. The naive magician magics their agenda so they get whatever thing that they want. Now, it might seem like a narrow and egotistical thing. You know, maybe they. It's one of the stories about a young magician who magics an A on a, an exam, or they magic themselves a car, whatever it might be, or it might seem lofty and noble. They magic their way to defeat the bad guy. But the point is, what we see in these stories again and again is that these naive magicians have used magic without a full enough understanding, and then we play out a story where they they think they succeeded. They got what they wanted. It all looks fine. And then they think they understand magic. And it may take a while before the magician begins to notice something. It's a little off. Or it may take someone else to come along and say, hey, when you did that spell, people got hurt. You got people killed even. We see this theme again and again because the soul seems to want to warn us I mean, I can't imagine this is a conscious warning on the part of the people writing these stories, necessarily. Like, they all believe in magic and they want to give us this warning like it, these films or books are handbooks on how to do magic. Why does it come up from the unconscious of the writer? The writer is just writing the story. Now the soul might want to warn us that we must not trifle with the magic of the world or think we can control it. And the evil magician is the one who uses magic knowing that their use will cause harms sometimes directly sometimes indirectly they don't worry about it and that's the definition of conquest consciousness so if the good magicians out there listening want to fulfill their highest ethical obligations of magic then we will all together all of us will have to learn the profundities and the inconceivable aspects of magic When the soul gives us these warnings about magic, we could also try and say, well, perhaps it's better to leave it alone. However, as we just noted, the degradation of magic goes together with the degradation of the world in a way that both reaffirms the power of magic and invites us to consider that we may only effectively heal ourselves and our world if we get initiated into the mysteries of magic. That doesn't mean we all have to become magicians in some kind of narrow sense, you know, some stereotypical notion or anything too limited and narrow. But it does suggest that maybe we all need to taste the reality of magic. As Yeats was saying, feel and see its evidences around the world, really taste it and experience it for ourselves in order to heal ourselves, and our world. So we've considered the way that magic and conquest and conquest consciousness stand opposed. We've considered this in many ways, different angles, examples, and several artifacts come to mind right now, which maybe we should keep them in mind as we think about how magic works. And I don't know if we've mentioned one in particular that comes to mind, but I'm thinking, of first of all, of Gary Snyder and his delightful and essential book, The Practice of the Wild. And in that book he writes about how Cabeza de Vaca, the conquistador, reached the edge of his narrow life. He basically lost everything. He lost his way, totally got got lost in the landscape of Turtle Island companions all dead so he's by himself he's in a state of total loss and in that state there's the threshold he gets initiated into the mysteries of life and we can notice there initiation isn't usually pleasant we have to go under into hell We have to face everything the ego wants to avoid. And we'll come back to this. We we have introduced this idea, initiation. If we're going to get initiated into magic, it might not be comfortable. Maybe it's what's going on right now. Maybe that's why the world's in a state. We have to be forced through this threshold. Ultimately, we follow a path of joy, a path of love. That's what love wisdom is. Socrates, Buddha... These great sages taught us that love-wisdom is a path of joy, a path of love. But the path can still bring a dark night of the soul, and sometimes it's a dark night of the soul that brings us the path. That's what it takes. Have to hit the bottom of the barrel, have to lose everything, and have nothing left to lose. So Cabeza de vaca went into this dark place, a feeling totally lost, and at the edge of death. That's often I mean, we have to die in in the spiritual sense. Again, to be reborn. Something has to go through the experience of death here in this life. And when Kabay emerged from that, he suddenly found himself able to heal people. He could do healing magic. And this ability healed the rift between him and the indigenous people that he had been out there conquering. Healed the rift between him and the landscape he had been conquering. And instead of conquering these people and the landscape, he began to offer healing. And the people accepted it. They accepted him as a healer. He was decidedly not the great white hope. That's exactly what he had let go of. He let go of being the great white hope. He let go of being white. He became re-indigenized. And when he let go, the power to heal came. And then what happened? Well, he finally made his way back to Mexico. And he rejoined the thing that we call civilization he became a civilized Spaniard again surrounded by the images and signs of civilization remember the experiment we just talked about In the last contemplation was it two contemplations ago the experiment about priming how we're primed by images primed by symbols signs And we think differently. So he became surrounded by the signs and the images of civilization and he lost the power to heal. The power to heal and the will to healing that goes with it. This kind of immediate thing that Yeats was saying once upon a time people were submerged in it. They were in it. Why did he lose it? Because we just touched it. There it was. He was back in civilization, back in its system of signs and symbols, its way of talking, its way of thought. He encountered real doctors with their medicine bags, their ways of speaking, their tools of healing. And he doubted his whole journey and realization. That's how it can become. Imagine being able to do real healing and then you just lose it. How, how is that even possible? He became domesticated again. And then he re-entered the split between what we call civilization and what we refer to as the wild, or wildness. And Gary Snyder says something so marvelous about all of this. He writes, quote, to resolve the dichotomy of the civilized and the wild, we must first resolve to be whole. That's delightful. We just suggested magic is the practice of wholeness. It is the resolution to live in wholeness with life. And we can say that we're talking about spirituality, we're talking about the path of love-wisdom, Love-wisdom is the realization of the magic of the world, of our own soul. So magic is just this resolution to live in wholeness with life, to live with and as the wholeness of this world, this community of life, and the whole cosmos, to live in attunement with our own wildness as the realization of wisdom, love, and beauty. Wildness is wisdom, love, and beauty, not something crass. But we have made a split between nature and culture that makes us create a world in which wildness exists in tension with culture. Another artifact comes to mind. The psychologist Carl Jung wrote about his trip to East Africa, and he visited. Uh, a small village in Mount Elgin. And he spoke with a medicine man there. And the encounter feels rather shocking. Jung, who was very obviously interested in dreams, I think we all know that, and he asked the medicine man about dreams. And the medicine man said, Dreams. I know what you mean. My father still had dreams. And Jung says to him, you have no dreams? And the medicine man wept. And he said to Jung, no, I have no dreams anymore. What a thing. So Jung asks, why not? And the medicine man tells him, since the British came to the country. That's a strange statement. Jung says, what do you mean? The medicine man says, the district commissioner knows when there's going to be war. He knows when the diseases come. He knows where we have to live. He doesn't allow us to move. Now, isn't that remarkable? Why bother dreaming if the weatherman and the government and our school counselor and our life coach and the CEOs and economists and marketing mavens, they can tell us what will happen and what we need. Why I have big dreams, deep dreams, dreams that guide us and our family, our whole community of life. How many of us, we talk about dreaming, but in the dominant culture, dream means I want to start a company. It doesn't mean that I was asleep and something came to me from the larger ecology of mind, a vision, a prophecy, and I need to share it with the community because it should direct our activity in the world. That's a very different sense of dream. For us, we've become totally unliteral about that phrase. Talk about dream the impossible dream, but it's not at all to do with going to a sacred place, praying for a vision, and laying down and dreaming it, which the ancient Greeks even did, let alone cultivating a practice of receiving guidance, real guidance. In a reflection that Gary Snyder would applaud, Jung explicitly connects this whole problem to wildness. He actually does this, which I I think Gary Snyder would love. Maybe Snyder knows this passage. If you're out there, Gary, thank you for your work. So Jung writes this, we're quoting here, dreams were the original guidance of human beings in the great darkness. When a person is in the wilderness... The darkness brings the dreams that guide them. It has always been so. Now he was being probably a little metaphorical, although he knew that Jesus went out into the desert. He knew that. He's saying when a person is in the wilderness, the darkness brings the dreams that guide them. That's, there's a lot in that. It's reconnecting to the wild... And being in the not knowing. If you want, you can look that passage up. It's in the collected works, volume eighteen, paragraph six seventy four. Another series of artifacts about magic comes to mind. This is from the anthropologist C. L. Martin. He's done some really interesting work. Interesting writer, thinker. And Martin quotes indigenous people speaking about how magic went away with the coming of conquest consciousness. And these thoughts teach us a lot about magic. One indigenous person said, The conjurer does not exist anymore with us, for there is no need of one, nor is there need for the drum, end quote. No need for the drum. Another indigenous person said, Since prayer has come into our cabins, our former customs are no longer of any service. Our dreams and our prophecies are no longer true. Prayer has spoiled everything for us. And a third says, The spirits do not come to help us now the white men have driven them away now the mention of prayer there does not mean it does not mean that prayer is bad it means conquest consciousness can distort prayer as much as it distorts magic magic involves the recovery of skillful prayer and remember jesus chastised the apostles for not being able to pray the way he could pray they weren't up to the task but that aside martin notices something else about these artifacts it's imp- i think important he writes this observation quoting here behold the strange incantatory powers of a speech that can silence the elemental powers around it how can anyone who wields such words ever hope to become a part of it all End quote. there's a lot in there because we're dealing here with words signs symbols magic often involves the conjuring of elemental powers by means of speech and symbols that's what yeats is pointing out in the third principle We may say, well, I'm skeptical of magic. And Martin says, well, you might be. But conquest language proves the power of magic precisely in the manner that it destroyed magic. Conquest consciousness uses crude magic to destroy sophisticated magic. It uses crude consciousness to destabilize a more elegant and attuned consciousness much the way that we could use a hammer to break an elegant crystal sculpture. Martin tries to get at this by pointing out that the Navajo people, as one example, seem to define themselves through a style of language that creates and illuminates connections between what could seem to conquest consciousness as rather strangely ordered categories of perceiving and knowing. And this kind of thinking all beings have a living place in an equally living landscape of powers and potentials. That leaves each soul with a sense of the totally essential need to participate in the whole, to realize oneself as fundamentally a part of it all. That's what the part of it all means in that phrase. So interwoven as to not be a part like a cog in a machine, but at one with the whole, even while having a relative role that at times feels like a part. And Martin is saying that conquest consciousness, by its very nature, can't really realize this wholeness, this deep participation in the whole which is the essence of magic. Maybe some people can come close, but the closer we get, the more we have to dispel conquest consciousness to realize it. And those who think of themselves as having cultivated a magical consciousness must get painfully serious about searching for the remnants of conquest consciousness they will inevitably find in their own soul if only they can look with enough passion. And Martin is saying something else about language. He sees language as a kind of energy or power for the architecture of space. And we're going to be meditating on these things that he's saying about language. Because that's part of how magic is evoked. Language most broadly defined To include the way forests think, commune, or communicate. To include the way honeybees think and commune or communicate. Language broadly conceived goes beyond establishing relations between human beings, which is how we treat it. Language is about human beings relating to each other but it seems to establish relations between human beings and the rest of the community of life, even things, if we're thinking about these ecologies of mind, mind that is, again, non-local. Clearly, we can communicate with a horse or a dog, and they can do what we invite them to do with us. And that can seem like magic when it really gets there because it seems like magic when we commune with any other being beyond the habitual use of words and concepts. Any being, because, you know, for instance, telepathy is magic. And there we have communed with each other in a way that goes beyond habitual language, but which somehow relied on a broader, deeper sense of communion and communication. Similarly, when Aragon or any other horse gives a clear indication of knowing what I'm thinking without habitual human language, I may begin to experience the faint glimmers of the larger magic that horses could initiate us into. And notice how that demands that we get beyond the persistent infantilizing language humans habitually use around horses. I mean, that's almost coming right from the shadow. It's always, good girl, or look at the baby. That's how people talk to a grown horse. As if horses need to be pulled into the conquest framework, first of all, of praise and blame, good horse, bad horse, and moreover have to be treated as children rather than elders and teachers, beings who might initiate us into the mystery. So what that does, that language that we use, It kills the magic, or at least vastly restricts it. Because again, people think they're having all kinds of powerful experiences. Okay, they might be. We want to absolutely honor that, because people have been healed by the horse. And we're only suggesting, but maybe there's more. And the presence of conquest consciousness in any form, and that includes in our unconscious, the ways that we just habitually think and speak and move, All of that can limit the experience of magic we can have with a horse or any other being. So it doesn't take anything away from people. It's just that we also have to be critical of our experience. We go around having experiences. We're not always critical of them. And more significantly is just this general idea of communing with larger ecologies of mind. Again, not just a being, because we try to stick the horse inside a bag of skin the same way that we're inside a bag of skin. We hide behind our skin, the horses inside their skin. We think the magic is that we breach these bags of skin. The magic is that we're not in them. So when we commune with larger ecologies of mind, especially with the sense that it's not a a particular being even, then that can give us an even clearer experience of magic. Because vaster patterns get activated and they can't even just between a person and a horse, a human being and a horse. Well, a horse is a person as far as I'm concerned. And this sort of magic appears, for instance, in synchronicities. Which rupture the ordinary boundaries of the skin. Synchronicities rupture the boundaries of space and time. And magic always involves larger ecologies of mind. Thus, Magic always ruptures the ordinary barriers we make around ourselves and the things in the world. That's part of its wildness. Martin admits that all of this is perplexing, so he has that beautiful humility that Yeats had, that we all need. For any of us in conquest culture, even if we want to believe in magic, even if we've experienced them, we should see it as perplexing and look into the deeper mysteries. We see in these examples, we we consider these artifacts because we see in them the despoiling of the sacred and the magical is a despoiling of the earth. The kind of despoiling we should see as forbidden in accord with really any good sense of ethics, any good sense of sacredness, any good sense of religion or spirituality. But even the philosopher John Locke, whom we criticized, he even had this notion of what the divine doesn't allow us to do with creation. And this guy was, if you listen to that contemplation, Locke's got this confused notion that we make things better by sticking our human nose into everything. And even he said, well, there's got to be a limit it has got to be something the divine really doesn't want us to do with the creation. Well, turns out it might be a lot more than what Locke realized. And this despoiling of the sacred and the magical brings an ugliness to the world. The ugliness that Yeats laments in his passage on magic. It's, it's a kind of evil, in fact. So it does go against the teachings of our spiritual traditions. And we can develop a sensitivity to this. At first, we're largely blind to it, or even as we start to see it, we're only partially seeing it. And Aldo Leopold wrote about this in his own way. He wrote that one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. And we're quoting there. Let's let's consider a little bit more of what he says. One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to the layperson. An ecologist must either harden their shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of their business, Or they have to be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. That's the real crux of it. That's where we're at on Turtle Island. We don't want to be told otherwise. Even progressive thinkers don't want to be told otherwise. You point out that there are wounds in the world and suddenly well, you have limited thinking, that's, that's a limited mindset, it's not abundance, I don't want to think that way, I want to think positivity, that's all well and good, absolutely. But any serious philosopher would say the same about love wisdom. To study any way of wisdom, love, and beauty, to study it with heart, makes us sensitive to wounds and wounding in every direction. And yeah, compassion means that we are able somehow to keep a space of joy in relation to it, but we see those wounds and we do not take them lightly. We don't just say, oh, well, may all beings be well and, you know, I'm just going to go about well, my way. I'm just going to do my little thing here. No, there's more concern there. I have to be responsive to this suffering. And much of the damage inflicted on the soul, our soul and the soul of the world, remains repressed and unconscious, essentially invisible to the general public and even to many progressive thinkers who may not want to hear about it, even though we all suffer from it. And I see this in clients all the time who start to get resistant if we draw too close to something the ego doesn't want to let go of or doesn't want to face. And then we, have our, we don't have rationalizations, we, have, we call them reasons. Well, that's not the way I think of it, or, you know, the defensiveness just comes up. And we certainly see this in the political and economic circus of the United States and the dominant culture in general. The absence of magical consciousness or eco sensual awareness goes without our conscious notice for the most part. and everyone walks asleep, yet frenetic, along the edges of a threshold they do not perceive and are seduced to ignore. We can become sensitized, and we can begin to notice a missing wildness, a missing magic and mystery, a missing sacredness and meaningfulness, And we can notice an invasive profanity, an invasive profanity and degradation and incoherence even as we continue to seek the sacredness of the world, maybe glimpse aspects of that sacredness in a recognition that makes this spreading degradation and incoherence all the more horrific. So many of us simply do not know what we're missing because we never had it. Can't know what you're missing if you never had it. We may suspect it. We may become sleepless, agitated, stressed, full of self doubt and self loathing because we have forsaken what we are and what the world is. That's the source of much of our Western self-hatred. People have a lot of theories about this because, you know, the culture tells us to think something's wrong with us. And it works perfectly because then we spend our money and our time seeking solutions. And therefore we lack the confidence to stand up to the pattern of insanity. But we can find another dimension there. People get critical of all of this religious guilt thing. Well, you know, that deep religious guilt and self-criticism also relates to what we have done to the world and to each other and how we live day to day in that pattern of insanity. And we need the strength, the compassion for us to face up to this real need for atonement for making things right. Which means an end to beating ourselves up about it and a beginning to real rejuvenation. But that's not just some internal thing. That's not to say, oh, well, I just got infected by the Christian story of guilt and a uh, capitalist, I'm not good enough. No, they're taking advantage of a consequence of conquest consciousness, which is that it did degrade the world. There is a reason to feel like, wait, I've done something wrong. Yeah, we're living crazy. And it's causing real wounds, real suffering to ourselves and others. And we need compassion. We need to turn toward that, make atonement, make things right, and rejuvenate the world. Heal these wounds. Magic can help us do that. That's why we're asking how magic works. And we're touching all this notice. We keep talking about language, pattern, sign. Wild, civilized. We're thinking about this deeply. Now in that same essay we just quoted from, Leopold, Aldo Leopold, he writes about the Round River. He says one of the marvels of early Wisconsin was the Round River, a river that flowed into itself and thus sped around and around in a never-ending circuit, these are his words. He says, Paul Bunyan discovered it. And the Paul Bunyan saga tells how he floated many a log down its restless waters. And Leopold says, well, no one suspected Paul Bunyan of speaking in parables. Yet in this instance, he did. Wisconsin not only had a round river, Wisconsin is one. Of course, all of Turtle Island is one. Leopold says the current is the stream of energy which flows out of the soil into plants, thence into animals, thence back into the soil in a never-ending circuit of life. We who are the heirs of Paul Bunyan have not found out either what we are doing to the river or what the river is doing to us. Wow. That's just, man, that's good. Everyone from Buddha to Bateson would applaud. Aldo Leopold there. Just marvelous. There's a marvel, a magic, a wonder already in the world, already as the world. And there is a penalty for ignoring it. The sages teach us that we do ignore it, that we are ignorant of it, just as Leopold says. He says, we haven't found out either what we are doing to that river or what that river is doing to us. We don't know it. We don't see it. We remain ignorant. And no ignorance of wonder and magic goes unpunished. No degradation of sacredness comes without a self-wounding. How many philosophers or ordinary citizens today can say they know what they do to this river? They really know what they do to this river and what this river does to them. Leopold is saying we don't know. He's trying to speak as an ecologist, being plain as can be. He's saying we don't know just as Socrates, Buddha, and Christ. Christ said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. He was presencing the river of life. To find out what we do, what we do to the river, what the river does to us, means an entrance, initiation, into nature and magic. It means self liberation into larger ecologies of mind that we can call the practice of magic and mystery. I'm talking about initiation here. And again, we intend no obscurantism, no irrationalism, no airy fairy foolishness when we're talking about this. We are talking about a paradigm shift. And the liberation, the magic, has to do with a kind of attunement with what Gregory Bateson called the pattern that connects. That means an inhibition of the tendency to point at parts of the pattern and take them as parts in a linear mechanistic conception of causality. And again, it's not what we believe. Well, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in linear things and mechanism and all that and world's a machine. I don't believe that. It doesn't matter. It's how we live. And we're asking how do we realize a deeper, far more intimate, non-linear relating, patterning, whatever we might call it. So we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. Again, we're trying to think of it in a deep way. We've been thinking about it all the way here. Just trying to approach this carefully. With a lot of awareness and sensitivity, as much as we can fit in contemplation like this. because we're talking about things we have to practice and realize and it could take a lifetime. This third principle of magic, there's an important key there. That's what we're trying to get at. Yeats says, this great mind and great memory can be evoked by symbols. Symbols evoking patterning, even presencing patterning. And we need to find out what patterning is. We have to know that before we could leap into evoking it with symbols, you know, like the naive magician who just starts using the incantations, not knowing what's going on. And anyway, if we want to understand magic, we have to understand patterning. Because the patterning explains the use of the symbols and explains how they work. Why it would be that we can do magic? Well, because the world's patterning. So then we have to know what that is because the symbols when yates says we can use these symbols that's the aspect of magic in a sense we all think we know because it seems familiar we've seen the movies and shows we read the books and therefore we've seen and read about magical symbols magical amulets and talismans and sigils and we've listened to characters speak magical incantations in a mishmash of Latin and Celtic and whatever it might be We've seen them make magical signs. We know this power of symbol. You see, we could put no in quotes there. This is what we know. We don't understand or understand it, but it's familiar and we think, oh yeah, that's what magic I know what that is. And we have to try to make that unfamiliar. We have to ask, well, how does it really work? And we just mentioned Bateson's idea of the pattern that connects. And we're going to come back to that, but first let's appreciate something Jung said. He said it more clearly. He said, we are a pattern. That was well said. Remember, Jung dealt with pattern, archetypes. And we aren't archetypes, not at all. But we're a patterning shaped by the patterning of those energies. Now, Buddha might refine that. He might say, Well, let's be clear. We are a patterning, not a pattern. We are a patterning of indestructible awareness. We are a patterning of primordial awakeness. Magic doesn't happen because we manipulate symbols, but because we ourselves are a symbol. We are a patterning. Our body is a symbol of the soul, a patterning of primordial awareness. Everything we see is a patterning of primordial awareness. But we don't relate to it that way. We can say we agree. Our behavior shows we don't know what we are. We don't know what patterning is in a deep way. So what is it? We have to ask the question seriously because as we inquire into things like this, as we inquire into the magic of the world, and as we consider how we might really heal ourselves in the world, how we could change the culture and live in harmony with each other, with the earth, we're going to have a tendency to say, oh, a pattern, I know what that is. And we have to ask that impulse to relax. Because the things we contemplate here are not what we already think, or else we'd have a different world. It's, it's not just that the people in the government need to think differently. You know, like, I, well, I have the right answer, and it's just those people at Exxon and Goldman Sachs and Google and the State Department, they need to think differently. No, we have to think differently. Gregory Bateson gave us a principle of spiritual common law when he said that the major problems of the world are a result of the difference between the way human beings think and the way nature actually functions. We have to sit with that as if he had asked us, what is the sound of one hand clapping? It really is a principle of spiritual common law. We say, oh yeah, well that makes sense, I understand that. Yeah, the major problems of the world, is the difference between the way human beings think and nature functions. Okay, well great. No, (laughs) there's a huge shift he's asking for. And the way nature functions is this patterning. We think we know what patterning is, we think, and we're using a verb form here, but we think we know what a pattern is. But if we really knew patterning the way we're trying to get at here, we wouldn't suffer. We wouldn't have the personal and global problems we have. So what is patterning? This question is so essential to the whole future of life on earth. I mean, this is just one way of asking it. What is patterning? But if we could get at what we mean by that question and really ask it, we would find the question so essential to the health of our souls and our soils, our lives and our loves, that we could see that it behooves us to hold this question of spiritual common law. So I invite you for the next week to think about this teaching that Bateson offers us. Not merely in an intellectual way. We don't have to treat it like some kind of intellectual artifact. But we can go outside, go into nature and ask, what is the difference between the way human beings think and the way nature functions? Could I listen and receive the teaching of what this difference is. Listen really in a deep silence. It's one thing to notice it in nature, but really to to even feel it, to let the words fall away and begin to sense the larger ecology of mind, to begin to sense the nature of mind in the mind of nature and our unity with the mind of nature. And the nature of mind. We'll go further into Yeats's third principle in our next contemplation, or maybe it'll even take a little further than that. But for now, some of the most important things to sit with, in addition to this question of spiritual common law, which would be sufficient. But if you can't get out in nature and sit with that, or don't want to sit with that question, I appreciate that. It might really be helpful. But it could also be helpful to sit with the notion that we are a patterning of primordial awareness. That's really a principle of spiritual common law as well, to notice that everything is that way. Everything is a patterning of primordial awareness, and to ask the question, what does that mean? And also to sit with the reflection that conquest consciousness comes with a breakdown of ecologies and of magic and sacredness. In other words, that these go together. The breakdown of ecologies goes together with the breakdown of magic and sacredness. And so then we could think about how that in turn offers an implication for healing. Whatever you contemplate, however you contemplate it, just appreciate, appreciate this world, appreciate the possibility that there is magic in every moment. That somehow it involves a process of letting go. So as we begin to let go, we begin to enter into it, draw close to it, really sense it. If you have questions, reflections, or stories of magic and mystery you'd like to share, get in touch through wisdomloveandbeauty.org. We might bring some of those into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of it.